open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We've got a really kind of fun legal interview today with Jason Seibert, an attorney based in the United States. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Trace. It's great yeah, so it was great. You know, we uh, we spent dinner last night, watched the Tango Show, and you told me the the craziest yarn. So your background, <laughs> uh, data engineer for NORAD with the Air Force, uh, went to law school. And then somehow you fell into Bitcoin. So yeah, maybe, right place, right time. Right place, right time. So maybe you can tell me about this case of first impression, like how you fell into Bitcoin, and you know, and then we can go from there. So to me, Bitcoin uh, in the fall of 2013 was a currency of choice for illicit activity. Uh, I hadn't looked into the details of it, hadn't looked into the code, really didn't understand the potential that Bitcoin had. Uh, I'd only seen the criminal activity side of it from a legal perspective. Then I had a client of mine call me up and, and ask me whether or not he should take Bitcoin in his store. And instead of telling him no, I said, just give me a moment and I'll call you back in a couple of days and I'll, I'll look into it. So I took a look at the code and I realized what we had was a value transfer protocol to work within the structure of the internet. Finally, we basically had a money system for for the internet and I saw its potential and no longer was Bitcoin a criminal currency, but it was it was a true uh, data-based peer-to-peer uh, value transfer protocol and, it, and it, I was very excited about it. That The data geek in me just took off. So I called my client back and I said, yeah, I think you should take Bitcoin because I think it's going to be something something pretty big. And as a first adopter, you would get brand loyalty and you would be early in and you would get the benefits of those of that side. So that's, that's how I got into Bitcoin was a client was curious about it. A few days later, I was watching CNN and uh, there was an announcement that the New York DFS was going to be holding hearings on the regulation of Bitcoin. This was early 2014. And I got on a plane that day and we talked about it. You were there as well. Yeah, I was actually at the same meeting. Didn't yeah. know you then. No, we, we didn't meet. And uh, we were discussing last night whether or not we thought potentially uh, if there was an actual auger prediction market at the time, I would have put money on the Winklevoss twins being arrested because Charlie Schramm had just been arrested uh, the day before the meeting. And so uh, I would have lost money on that. And you would have <laughs> made money on that. And that's okay. We can be wrong from time to time. Uh, that's the beauty of beauty of uh, guessing. Of markets. Yeah. Um, so shortly after uh, that meeting, I helped draft a white paper with a friend of mine who was going to Georgetown on you know legal constructs and interpretation of Bitcoin within a, within a legal and accounting perspective of how to look for that and how it really worked in the legal world, how different attorneys could raise different questions during depositions on how to cross-examine folks who may be holding assets in cryptocurrency and how they could work with 
estate planning on how cryptocurrency questions could be asked. Because obviously, if grandpa dies with cryptocurrency keys and he doesn't share it, then all that all that wealth is lost. So how to really work within the cryptocurrency world. While that was happening, I was aware of the Shavers case. And this is Trend and Shavers. The Trend and Shavers case and Bitcoin Savings and Trust. And I represented both Trend and Shavers and Bitcoin Savings and Trust in uh, the Sherman Division of uh, the Federal District Court in Texas. I hadn't at that point. He'd been representing himself for almost a year. Got himself backed into a corner pretty good. And uh, I recognized that the government, uh, the SEC, was doing some pretty good bullying at that point and, and using all of their tricks. And through channels, Trendon and I ended up having a conversation. And at the end of that conversation, it was decided that, that I would represent him and, and Bitcoin Savings and Trust. And so I flew out to McKinney, Texas the next day and made my appearance in the Sherman Division. And things kind of went from there. I recall my first hearing with Judge Mazant, who was the magistrate judge over the case, and he looked at me so puzzled. You know, <laughs> he was like, "This case has been going on for so long." You know, and I remember him asking me, "Mr. Cyber, why are you here?" You know, <laughs> like, "Why weren't you here a year ago? Why are you here now?" And my response to him was, uh, "You know, Judge, before I was a lawyer, I was a." data engineer and I took care of all the mainframes at NORAD and his face lit up he was so happy <laughs> he leaned across the bench and he said please can you tell me what Bitcoin is and uh, I thought that was odd because nearly a year earlier he had already ruled from the bench that Bitcoin was money I was like okay so you're admitting to me you made a decision about Bitcoin being money and you had no idea what it was. And of course, I couldn't say that in open court on the record. All I could do was say, well, you know, Judge, I'd be happy to tell you what Bitcoin is. And, it, it, you know, you don't want to upset the judge. I, I probably spoke for about an hour on the record about Bitcoin being simultaneously a protocol and a brand. And you know, the properties of value transfer protocols and how they're actually recording a transfer. It's not actually, you know, a coined currency that, you know, there's no tangible asset that is... Well, corporeal or physical. Correct. That there's, it's just a record of a transaction, a ledger. Yeah. Uh, and, well, it's reality. Consensus-defined yes. reality. And, and so, you know, towards the end, uh, you know, we had a really good discussion and... You know, the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, basically sat there with their you know, hands on their chins just waiting for the opportunity to talk because the judge and I were just having this really <laughs> intense academic conversation about, you know, life, death, big city, and Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, so that was my first introduction into the Bitcoin world, the uh, legal world, was explaining to a federal magistrate judge. And this was a case of first impression. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Case of first impression. Uh, it was the one that ultimately decided that uh, from from the Securities and Exchange Commission's jurisdictional calculation, a transaction including Bitcoin involving an investment contract for the purposes of the Howey test, Bitcoin could be money. Right. So narrowing that down. Of course, the IRS defines Bitcoin as a commodity. Uh, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission uh, defines Bitcoin as a commodity. But for SEC's jurisdiction, they were able to basically backdoor legislate or backdoor rule make Bitcoin into being defined as money, regardless of 
a clear definition under the U.S. Code of what money is. Which right. clearly 31 include, USC yeah. 5101 through 5118, right? right? And, and so, I mean, there's not included in that. <laughs> well, yeah. Right. And constitutionally, even Federal Reserve notes aren't included in that. <laughs> right. So we, we've got uh, this... this it, it's easier for an administrative agency to run to the courthouse to ask for law to be defined than it is to go through the notice and comment period to change rules. And so, to me, it was pretty obvious that the SEC was trying to get out in front of power gravity by, by doing this power yeah. what, uh, or under legal terms, ultra-various actions. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what happened with this? Shavers is backed into a corner... Are you talking about transactionally or uh, I mean, within just the kind of procedurally, or, procedurally, or in like so, procedurally in the court? I mean, he's kind of backed into a corner. Well, uh, it all started about a year before I showed up. Actually, a little longer than a year before I showed up. Uh, the SEC came knocking under an administrative hat, not a civil or criminal hat, but under an administrative law hat, and they wanted him to uh, show all of his records and all of his transactions. And uh, Mr. Shavers very politely uh, gave him a double-fingered salute and said, come back with a warrant, uh, which isn't necessarily the way that the SEC wants to be received. Then, instead of getting a lawyer, he took it upon himself to um, represent himself during depositions. And that's not very wise. No, generally not. I, I, review, I reviewed the deposition transcripts, and it was really interesting. You can maybe, uh, those that are listening, you can find the transcript. It is available online. And then go and find some of the uh, cryptocurrency chat logs <laughs> and put them side by side and kind of read along because the chat logs, you could see the folks were reading the deposition transcript and then commenting as they were reading it. So it's like this Mystery Science Theater 3000 <laughs> kind of dialogue that's I mean, it's in print, so you kind of have to figure it out. But some of these comments of the cryptocurrency world were, were just priceless, you know. Um, Reddit is a source of gold. Oh, yeah. It was, so as I was preparing for the case with Mr. Shavers, obviously, I needed to know what was going on in the community, how they interpreted the deposition, how he had explained himself in the deposition. Of course, I recognized that the attorneys for the SEC were doing everything they could just to keep him talking. And the idea is the more that a witness talks, uh, the more they are going to volunteer information that that's going to hurt them or potentially be used to hurt them. And Mr. Shavers didn't didn't know that. The rule number one in a deposition is you only answer the question asked. You exactly. Don't, you don't answer the question you think they ask or ask them if they ask that because that'll just lead them to say, well, why don't you answer that question and then we'll come back to the other one. Don't don't do the work of the of the government for them. I suppose is is the lesson there. Uh, so if if you do happen to find yourself lucky enough to receive a letter from the Securities and Exchange Commission in an administrative way, um, give me a call. Yeah. Well, and, then, and it might might be anything, right? Because <laughs> sure. if you get served even with a civil securities fraud lawsuit, it could potentially end up as an administrative law or yes. even a criminal law action also. Th- that's right. Uh, the securities laws walk in three different playgrounds simultaneously, administrative, civil, and criminal. And the attorneys that are working for the government or from a plaintiff standpoint in the administrative, civil, or criminal field, they'll all share information together. So it's effectively three against one. So it's really important that you, you protect yourself early on if you do get 
get some form of a, a invitation letter to come uh, have a discussion. I mean, who knows with all these ICOs, these initial coin offerings and these yeah. crowdfundings. And I mean, everybody's doing all types of who knows what. And one of these bureaucrats might decide, hey, I want another pelt above the mantle. <laughs> That's right. You know, and some folks uh, in your audience may have heard me speak in San Diego or New York or Austin or maybe even here in Buenos Aires, uh, which I got to tell you, I love Buenos Aires. I didn't know I'd like it so much. <laughs> Beefy de uh, chorizo. <laughs> oh, right. It's great. Forgive me. The, the term that I'm looking for here is, is game theory strategy, right? The phrase that I'm looking for is game theory strategy. When an agency comes calling and you're, you're trying to decide ahead of time, let, let me back up. You're, you're doing an initial coin offering and you think an agency may come calling. And you have to decide, do I want to comply or do I want to beg for forgiveness, right? Ask for permission or beg for forgiveness. I see a lot of folks that are moving towards the beg for forgiveness route. Because under game theory strategy, based on the current jurisprudence, it may be financially advantageous to go out and make money under a construct knowing that you're potentially violating securities laws in order to build up a, a bank account large enough to be able to sustain the penalty and grow your business. That's a business decision. That's not a legal decision. As a lawyer, I can't advise anybody to knowingly violate the law. I can only present the opportunities of what may or may not happen should you make a choice. From that construct, there's also the contingent of folks within the Bitcoin world that believe that an initial coin offering is not the sale of a security because it's somehow fuel or it's a software license uh, being <laughs> sold ahead of time before the software exists to even license. And it's those circumstances where I've told people flat out, no, that, that's the sale of a security. And the response from the person hearing that, the crypto anarchist or the crypto evangelist that hears that, is they want to push back and they, they accuse me of being a regulator. Why am I in Bitcoin? You know, why am I here? <laughs> and, and my response to that is, I'm telling you what it is. I'm not telling you what you want to hear. I'm not telling you what you think you want to hear. I'm telling you what it is. Now, how that gets enforced later, if it gets enforced later. At all if at all, is a risk-reward calculation. So this is, you know, as I would not presume to tell a coder how to code, don't tell a securities attorney what is and what isn't a security, okay? <laughs> this is our sandbox. It's what we do. Any securities attorney that says, no, it's not a security, they're lying to you. They're only trying to get money out. I would rather take the approach of telling you what it is and then plan the strategies for dealing with that and how to deal with that from a risk-reward standpoint, whether or not that's asking for permission or later on begging for forgiveness. Now, how do you determine what's that line? How do I know if I'm selling fuel or if I'm selling a security? And I would just offer to the audience one question. What are you in the business of doing? Are you in the business of raising money? Or are you in the business of selling a product? So from the standpoint of if you're truly selling fuel for a product that's operational, then you're in the business of selling a product. 
But if you're selling fuel to be used in a product later on that isn't developed yet, you're in the business of raising money to develop that product. Now you're selling a security. Does that make sense? Yes, because we've, I mean, so many of these ICOs are pie in the sky. Oh, we're going to do X, Y, Z after we've gotten your money. Yes. And so usually what goes along with that is the person that's buying that coin offering, they're speculating. In the scam or the pump and dump or in the very rare case of the thing yeah, actually getting built deal, out right? and being a legitimate deal. And, and so the regulatory agency doesn't care how you word it in your documentation, how you try to change the wording on your web page. Oh, this is only fuel. Look, the, the agency has have been around for a very long time. They, they've seen all the They've tricks. seen all the Ponzi scams. That's they've right. seen all the fraudulent inducement. That's all right. the... They're, they're not going to care how you word it. The agency there is to protect the investors. So they're going to take it from the rubric of the person handing over the money to the company. How did they view it? And what did they expect out it's, of this transaction? That's exactly right. And so tread carefully, but do so in full knowledge and have a plan. That's the prudent way to go about it. Don't try to say that it's not a security. Just assume that it is, but have a plan if a regulator comes calling. Right? Don't, don't go blindly into the future with fingers crossed, hoping that someone someday will believe your, your argument that it's fuel. Right? Thanks for listening to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. Our awesome audio editor needs to eat. He makes your experience better by increasing the sound quality and decreasing the show's time by editing out unnecessary ums, ahs, pauses, and such. With only a few seconds of your time, you can support the show. Do you ever buy stuff on Amazon? Before you do, simply visit bitcoin.kn forward slash resources. You can get there from the homepage and click on one of the links. It takes you to Amazon. Then at no additional cost to you, we get a tiny percentage of anything you purchase, even if it's not that particular item. These resources, they're all my favorite hacks that have increased my quality of life, so you might learn something helpful. They range from healthy snacks to sleep optimization, meditation tools, cognitive enhancers, immune system boosters, and much more. Maybe you'll find them useful. Either way, any support is greatly appreciated. Thanks, and now back to the show. Yeah, so with Shavers, where did he go wrong then um i mean because he yeah because the, the, the outcome is what 40 million dollar civil judgment right, by the sec and outcome, an 18 yeah. month prison, prison term sentence. yes prison he's, sentence. he's currently at summer camp at the federal correctional <laughs> graduate facility. school graduate, yes, graduate school, school <laughs> at, uh, the federal correctional facility at texarkana where did he go wrong that's a that's a good question you have to recall it back in 2012 2013 Maybe you'll remember without me giving away too much. What was one of the key functions of cryptocurrency? What did it offer a user of cryptocurrency? Yeah, I mean, people were being able to transfer value over distance. So they were using it to speculate on things like GLBSC. They were using it to uh, to buy things, whether legitimately or illegitimately. But it also uh, offered but anonymity. Also, yeah, I mean, it was not tied to uh, somebody's identity like a PayPal account. Right. And so that gave it use cases with things like the Silk Road and, yes. uh, and other places. So Shavers held on to anonymity within his transactions. 
So he moved in total over 700,000 Bitcoin through the Bitcoin Savings and Trust. And he never knew the actual identity of anybody he was transacting with. Imagine that for one moment. In the compliance world of <laughs> know your client and anti-money laundering, uh, do you move 700,000 Bitcoin without knowing who you're transacting with? From a risk assessment standpoint, you know, you went to law school, you understand this. From an attorney standpoint, mitigation of risk is key. So he exchanged or lent out over 200,000 Bitcoin in a single set of transactions, a structured transaction, and he had no idea who it was that he was lending, lending the, Bitcoin the Bitcoin to. 202,000. 202,000 Bitcoin. But it was based on trust. You may recall back then we had trust systems where people were yeah, given web, trust. Web of trust exactly. and uh, cryptographic signatures yes. for so establishing the, identity. His counterparty had a very high trust rating. And they'd established a series of transactions together where they established that they had control of assets and they were who they said they were at least within an online identity. But the actual identity of the person that he sent this Bitcoin to, he never knew for certain. So when that 200,000 Bitcoin went out and never came back, he didn't have the ability to say, hey, give me my Bitcoin back. I know who you are and then get redressed through uh, a court of law or... For breach of contract. Or right, whatever. or an international arbit arbitral forum if the person was international. Like Japan. Correct. Maybe some mountain <laughs> somewhere that happened to deal in magic cards at some point in time. I, I can't say for sure, right? There's certain things I'm allowed to talk about right. and not. The, uh, the point being, he went where he went wrong was entering into that large of a transaction without without knowing for certain how he could... Who his counterparty was and how he could have redress of grievance if uh, how he could account breach of contracts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, how to account for the risk. So that's um, that's a big risk to take. Now, when, when that Bitcoin didn't come back, Shavers emptied his own wallets to try to get people back as much as he could. And in doing so, he, he tried to do it on a fairness basis. And as a result, some folks, some brand new folks that had uh, given Bitcoin through uh, one of the pass-through accounts, their Bitcoin was given to some others, and it only happened once, but that was enough for the government to say, ah, you took in somebody's Bitcoin as part of an investment, and you gave it to somebody else in payment, that's a Ponzi scheme. In the loosest, most infant process terms, yes, that does qualify as a subsection of a Ponzi scheme. But generally, a Ponzi scheme is done over time. Right. And this is just at the end, this after right he had a, a counterparty with a issue. very large amount that defaulted. That's right. So, you know, I jumped in uh, at a time when, when the Shavers case was under an asset freeze order, so he didn't have any ability to pay me for my services. We petitioned the court to lift that asset freeze so we could hire accountants and we could hire experts and, and he could pay me to continue. Uh, the court refused to lift that asset freeze order at the request of the Securities and Exchange Commission because they wanted a verified accounting of the transactions. And our response to the verified accounting request was blockchain. <laughs> You've got a record already. <laughs> exactly. I can't give you any more verified of an accounting than the blockchain. 
and the SEC uh, argued to the judge that that wasn't a traditional verified accounting, that they needed something from an accounting firm, and they refused to lift the asset freeze uh, until they had the verified accounting. So they basically created a scenario where the defendant, Shavers, was unable to defend himself. And after several years of administrative and civil litigation, my client got tired. He did. He got tired of getting beat up, and he just wanted it to be over. And you know, his thought was, okay, we'll, we'll just try to settle. And so we entered into settlement negotiations with the SEC, but they wanted a verified accounting, and we weren't able to provide it. So settlements failed. And after that point, without the asset freeze lift and without any path to move forward to, to pay me, uh, we did a pass the hat campaign through the Bitcoin community. Can you guys donate? We can move forward. And uh, all told, we collected $50 because the community, <laughs> the community must not like so Shavers. Boy, a lot of money. And they didn't understand that uh, what you had was a massive power grab by the Securities and Exchange Commission, and that's what they needed to fight. Not not shavers. They needed to fight the SEC. Anyway, long story short, my client couldn't afford to pay me, and he felt bad to keep me on while I was putting expenditure and expenditure and expenditure out there. He finally terminated my services for inability to pay, which was unfortunate. And then shortly thereafter, uh, the hammer fell right on top of his head. And after that, he ended up in handcuffs because of the judgment that the SEC obtained in the civil court arena. All of that went right into the Department of Justice hands of the U.S. attorney in New York and brought charges against him. Tying it in, of course, because they made the claim that some of the money that was transacted in order to acquire the Bitcoin from these other folks that gave Shavers Bitcoin, more likely than not, entered into a New York financial bank computer. They didn't allege that any person that was harmed actually was a resident of New York. They just alleged that the money had transferred through a New York bank computer, thereby giving the Southern District of New York jurisdiction over the claim. Were there any New York <laughs> banks even running a Bitcoin no, full node at the no, time? <laughs> no, of course. Right? I mean, so the way that, you know, and these are the tricks that they do. Huge these are the power grab uh, in terms of personal jurisdiction of, of and due process. And and they had precedent for it. So they just, they just keep doing it. And because they deny you your ability to make a defense for yourself by freezing your assets, they just steamroll right over the top. Uh, long story short, uh, the defense team that, that was uh, appointed to him through the public defender's office did a pretty good job of defending Shavers. I had actually called up that defense team a couple of times and said, hey, I'm here to help if you need me. And and they never called me. Huh. Uh, you know, um, they, they had no idea what Bitcoin was. And as far as I know, I'm one of a few actual data engineers turned securities lawyer that exists on the planet. Yeah, most so, most lawyers studied like political science or, in, or history, English or, right? or something. Yeah, you know. <laughs> history instead of future. <laughs> so, like I said at the beginning of this talk, uh, I found myself at a confluence of, of law and technology at just the right time. So Bitcoin. Here I am.
here, here you are. Yeah. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. <laughs> One of the old war stories. Yeah. Uh, from from the space, and who knows how we'll see everything else play out. Hopefully, hopefully Peter Vestness of Bitcoin Foundation will get rid of his lawsuit against Mount Gox and all these uh, Bitcoins can get distributed to people as they're supposed to. I'm sorry, I can't comment and, on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just from Kraken, just from yeah, Kraken, because sure. uh, Kraken's been appointed to be the uh, the bankruptcy trustee has appointed them to distribute uh, 202,000 Bitcoins from the, uh, from the Mt. Gox bankruptcy. That's such a weird number, isn't it? <laughs> and what a coincidence. And... Uh, <laughs> I, I think Tabane, the cat, like actually has those private keys. But <laughs> anyways, uh, yeah, the war stories. Maybe maybe I'll have Charlie Shrim on again, or or the Winklevoss twins. <laughs> uh, at different occasions, Charlie Shrim and I actually slept on the same couch in Washington D.C. Oh, that's we know some funny. Of the same people, some of the same so. people down there. Yeah. Not at the federal pen. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, and to reiterate, we were not on the couch at the same time. Was, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well, fortunately, uh, we'll we'll continue to be able to have financial innovation happen uh, despite these regulators, because you know other jurisdictions, whether it's Europe or particularly Asia, they're or letting Argentina. or they're Argentina, they are figuring it out, and, and it is growing super fast, and and the people are making a ton of money, and yeah. so you know, or is the U.S. just going to be this? Like back world, third water, a third world country that can't even have uh, clear, crisp cell phone communications in nice, clean airports uh, like they have in China. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's really kind of ridiculous. I was shocked. The Buenos Aires airport is absolutely beautiful. Oh, yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And (laughs) fly out of LaGuardia sometime, you know. I've been there. Like. A dirt hellhole, <laughs> but uh, I mean that's what you get when you regulate stuff out of existence. Uh, you you don't you don't necessarily see what you don't have until you go somewhere else that hasn't regulated everything out of existence. I think that's right. And and China's got a larger GDP than the U.S. now. They are full steam ahead in terms of entrepreneurship and venture capital and and blockchain technology. And they're you know. It, yeah, Americans, their standard of living is just going to keep going down until they figure this out. And it's kind of unfortunate. And as that goes down, they won't have the money to pay SEC enforcement right. officers right. and stuff like that. that I mean, like, they'll just be too poor. <laughs> well, I don't see that in my crystal ball, but it's definitely, that's a... $20 trillion dollars a of debt. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. at what, the average net worth of an American, counting all of the debt, is a negative $450,000 or Isn't something? That, uh, I don't know the number, but if that's the number, it's depressing. I, I mean, it's negative hundreds and hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars. I mean, Americans are, are very, very poor in terms of actual net worth. Uh, they only are able to sustain their standard of living because of a credit card. But as soon as uh, the creditors, who are Chinese and, and many others around the world, decide not to extend that line of credit, then the Ponzi scam goes poof, just like Trendon's Ponzi scam went, went poof. Uh, to, to be clear... Trendon wasn't running a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> <laughs> Even if only for a minute or two? <laughs> no, that's just, a, that's just a, a, a light misappropriation of funds. That's not a Ponzi scheme. 
It's, you might call it conversion, but it's not a Ponzi scheme. So uh, I, I can try to advocate for it all I want, but your point is well taken. Uh, I think the overregulation of issues in the United States is leading to a constricted growth rate of Bitcoin technology, and that's a shame because I see more people here in Argentina. You might be able to hear them in the background uh, if you're listening in. I see more people here innovating uh, with this technology. And creating value. And creating value and, and, and advancing the technology here than I do in the United States where they're afraid of trying to raise money to bring their idea to light because they're not sure if they're going to be regulated or not. And that kind of uncertainty creates a, a chilling effect on on innovation and that's unfortunate yeah i know especially as an investor i've refused to make any additional investments in us-based uh, bitcoin or blockchain companies and one of the uh the investments i looked at but passed on down here in latin america uh two years ago they had three employees now they have 50 yeah and they're and they're and they're uh, they got volumes that are rivaling some of our uh, some of my U.S. based blockchain investments that have been around since the beginning, and and they pale in comparison in terms of size and success to the Chinese companies, yeah. and so yeah. it really is unfortunate just how impossible it is to compete in this space uh, as a U.S. person. It, it really is unfortunate, but you know that is what it is. Anyways, it's been a wonderful interview with you. We've had Jason Siebert, attorney in the United States, who represented Trendon Shavers in a case of first impression on Bitcoin and securities law. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate. Yeah.